Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates, an online radio show where I'll be covering true crime, political conspiracies, occult Hollywood, and a wide variety of other topics. Tonight on the show, I'll be reading from my latest book, Children of the Beast, Alistair Crowley's Shadow of Humani Over Humanity. Uh, it's a 350-page book with about 700 and... How many footnotes am I at? 762 footnotes. So it's a very thoroughly researched book, in my opinion. And it covers Crowley's influence upon the 20th century, figures that a lot of people know and some people don't know. And I really just started by covering Aleister Crowley in a kind of brief method or brief way. Uh, my book, Prophet of Evil, covers him in greater detail, but it's important, I think, to do an independent study for this book and kind of relate some of the later information back to his books and research and uh, just show the connection. So I really tried to do that. As far as the intro, I just kind of covered him briefly, talked about what he did. I think it's kind of important to know what my intent was with the book. And so the intro reads, The shadow of occultist Edward Alexander Cro Alistair Crowley darkens the history and culture of the 20th century. As the preeminent accumulator of occult knowledge and the foremost writer and cultist of the 19th and early 20th century, Crowley incorporated knowledge gleaned from prior magicians, writers, and philosophers, forming these ideas with his own into a new religion for a new age. An avid writer and an accomplished scholar, Crowley left a vast storehouse of literature. By his own admission, he was addicted to reading and writing. His enormous amount of co completed works exhibits his mastery of prose, and with his pen he wielded a vast power of expression. Crowley wrote books under a variety of pseudonyms and self-published his own material at whim, using the highest quality materials at the best printing houses of the day, and authored innumerable articles for, public, for popular publications. His voluminous writings are often couched in thick jargon, referencing arcana contained in occult manuscripts, the Kabbalah, the Tarot, world history, and mythology. The primary interest of this book is to trace the trajectory of Aleister Crowley's ideas and their effect upon his followers, and thereby history through the 20th century to the present. Be forewarned, Aleister Crowley dominates the narrative of this book, as my intent is to document the impact of Crowley's personality and ideas have had upon individuals who knew him and those who sought out and attempted to understand and follow what he meant. This book has a specific agenda, to expose Aleister Crowley and his connections to historically important figures. Each person in the book could be analyzed in greater detail, but I want to include as many individuals as possible in order to clearly dem demonstrate Crowley's impact. Although some of the lives of the people I've studied overlapped, I listed each person and fo focused upon their interest in relation to Crowley individually. While this book can be seen as an exercise in selective biography, the information in the book shows that in his days, Crowley mixed and influenced a wide variety of influential, with a wide variety of influential people, and those people mixed and kept in contact with each other. Many of their personal associations, associations intersect and overlap over time. Why is Aleister Crowley important in understanding the history and culture of the 20th century and the new millennium? Unlike other gurus, Crowley's vision of unrestricted sex, drugs, and forbidden knowledge attracted 20th century adherents wanting to move from older Western ideas. His battle cry of personal liberty, do what thou wilt, captured spiritual seekers and of a darker shade. Crowley insisting to his adherents they do or actively act upon their desires, desires in the world. In my experience, all serious modern occultists eventually hear of and read of Crowley, and I have found a few unmoved by the breadth and depth of his canon. I have broken this book into three general parts as denoted in the table of contacts by those who knew Crowley personally, those who adhered to his teaching and systems after his death in 1947, and the followers of the present day. As the information in this book will demonstrate, Alistair Crowley created a new religion of individual will, Thelema, with the intent to permanently change his devotees, their relation to the world, and thereby human history. 
I believe this book will document the remarkable and largely unrealized impact Crowley had upon the history and culture of the 20th century and the new millennium. I think if you want a detailed analysis of Aleister Crowley's life, you can go back and listen to my first talk, uh, Prophet of Evil. It can be found on Spreaker or at my YouTube site, occultinvestigations.com. I talk about Crowley in detail, at least uh, for the first half of his life in that talk. And uh, that would be a good place to kind of get some of that information. If you get a chance, go to occultinvestigations.com also, and you can buy the book if you like, a signed copy of the book. But if you're at the YouTube site of Cold Investigations, please subscribe when you get the chance. Uh, in the book, I kind of I wanted to make sure people understood the the numerology of Aleister Crowley, so I talk about 1177 and 93 and their impact upon Crowley, but also the person who really Crowley uh, insisted influenced influenced him the most, and that was Eliphas Levy. He actually believed he was the reincarnation of Eliphas Levy. Crowley did, and so. I talk about some of the, the general themes uh, of Eliphas Levy's teachings. Teachings, you know, were disseminated by to a wide variety of different uh, occult scholars, but it's believed and that morals and dogma was uh, by the Masonic scholar Albert Pike was uh, heavily influenced by Eliphas Levy. Apparently, he he lifted or Albert Pike lifted direct quotes right out of Eliphas Levy's book without attribution. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I quote Eliphas Levy, I said, We have said there is no religion without mysteries. Let us add there are no mysteries without symbols. The symbol being the formula or the expression of a mystery only expresses its unknown depth by paradoxical images borrowed from the known. So it kind of shows that known images uh, have a esoteric meaning. There's an exoteric and esoteric meaning. Eliphas Levy, Levy laid down certain principles that are... Um, vital to the magician, and most no, kind of deep occultists understand the meaning of this and its symbol, which is the Sphinx. But he, he talks about the the great secret of magic, the unique and incommunicable arcana, for, has for its purpose the placing of supernatural power at the service of the human will in some way. To attain such an achievement, it is necessary to know what has to be done, to will what is required, to dare what must be attempted, and to keep silent with discernment. So um, those were his four kind of uh, values or principles for the magician. And Levy used the Egyptian Sphinx as a symbol of the embodiment of the preceding four principles and of the perfected man, the Magus. So it's a common theme and something that Crowley adopted. And it's a common symbol that I use through the book. I don't really use, but I reference as a lot of these people, Jimmy Page and uh, Kenneth Anger, for example, all use the Sphinx in their art and in their personal pictures, there's a lot of references to the Sphinx, so I, I try to lay that out for the reader in uh, Children of the Beast. And uh, here he, uh, Elvis Levy links the four powers of the Magus to know, to will, to dare, to keep, to remain silent with the four elements, where he says, you are called to be king, be king of air, water, earth, and fire, but to reign over these four living creatures of symbolism, is it is necessary to conquer and enchain them. He, aspire, he who aspires to be a sage and to know the great enigma of nature must be the heir and despoiler of the Sphinx. His, his the human head in order to possess speech. His the eagle's wings in order to scale the heights. His the bull's flanks in order to furrow the depths. His the lion's talent to make, make a way on the right and the left before and behind. So Alistair Crowley himself exp expanded upon that, um, that principle in his writings. And I also include kind of people that people may not be wholly aware of. Um, I talk about Somerset Maugham, uh, 
WB Yeats, also JFC Fuller, who I've talked about in some of my more recent inter interviews. But Fuller himself was an interesting guy in the sense that he was really at one with Crowley and their opinion and to destroy Christianity. They wrote He wrote a book about Crowley, um, which is A Star in the West. That was the title of his book. And in The Star of the West, they talk about, you know, how, how saying that, for example, here's, here's uh, Fuller. In the pen of Crowley, like that of Saladin, Swinburne, and Shelley, is but another douche of cold water to wake the frowsy sleepers of the night and watch from, wash from their gluey eyes the nightmare of Christian supremacy. So they actually uh, wrote a whole book about this, The Star in the West. And Captain uh, G.F.C. Fuller, interesting, he, uh, he designed a lot of the art for the cover of the book, which you wouldn't expect from a guy who was a graduate of Sand, Sandhurst in England, probably their top military school. He had an artistic side to him, interested in yoga and the Kabbalah as well. Uh, but one of the interesting parts about, uh, another interesting part about Fuller is the connection between him and, Al, and Alf Hitler. Um, there's other connections between Crowley and Hitler. There was another friend of Crowley when Crowley was in the uh, United States acting as a British spy. He befriended a guy by the name of Virek, V-I-E-R-E-C-K, and wrote for his uh, publication. But Virek was one of the first people to, he was a pro-German sympathizer, and he was one of the first people to interview Adolf Hitler after the war, after World War I. And there's there's kind of a uh, kind of a notorious article where Hitler is talking to Varek and laying out all of his his plans. Uh, probably I think it was 1922, and talking about his plans for the final solution for the war um, regarding the, the Treaty of Versailles, if I if I can remember correctly. But it's an interesting article in its own right. But it's also interesting because Varek was an associate of Aleister Crowley. Uh, Fuller himself. Was, uh, went to, to Germany many times, and German, uh, German uh, uh, generals came to England, actually, to talk with Fuller, because Fuller came up with the idea of masked tank or armored warfare, something after the war. He had actually been, Fuller had actually been in the development of the tank, early tank, uh, in World War I, and advocated its use, which never was really picked up on by the English but the Germans thought it was fascinating. So one of Hitler's main generals, a guy by the name of Heinz Guderian, traveled to London to discuss military strategy with J.F.C. Fuller. Guderian would be one of Hitler's one of Hitler's most successful generals. And interestingly, he was never executed at Nuremberg. He was considered by um, the Allies or the victors to be a, a lifelong military servant and not involved in the Nazi party. And I think he just... Lived out the rest of his life. It's a very interesting story, the story of Heinz Guderian. But uh, because of his uh, involvement in kind of advocating armored tank warfare, he was invited and admired by Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was uh, invited him to his birthday party in 1934, uh, his 50th birthday party. And uh, Fuller traveled to Germany and recollects his time with Adolf Hitler. Uh, he also says, I met Hitler first in December 1934 and was the sole foreign journalist at his first maneuvers in the following year. Subsequently, I met him some uh, some half a dozen times and was one of two Englishmen who attended his 50 birthday celebrations in 1939, a most interesting occasion. So I apologize. His 50, Hitler's uh, birthday was not in 34, it was 39. Um, so he described his attendance at the event in an encounter with Adolf Hitler. On the morning of April 20th, the Great Parade took place. For some three hours, a completely mechanized and motorized army roared past the Fuhrer along the Charlottenburger Strasse. 
Never before since have I watched such a formidable mass of moving metal. That afternoon, all foreign guests were lined up in the new chancellery to meet Herr Hitler. He walked down the line, and when he came opposite to me, he shook me by the hand and said, I hope you, you were pleased with your children. To which I answered, Your Excellency, they have grown up so quickly that I no longer recognize them, which was true. Um, Fuller had kind of an unsavory association with uh, the Union, Brit Union of British Fascists, who was led by Oswald Mosley, apparently is one of the most reviled people in England. But uh, he spent his retirement uh, writing books, and he wrote books about uh, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, stuff like that. He died in 1966. But J.F.C. Fuller is a pretty fascinating character in his own right, um, not only just a disciple of Aleister Crowley. The next person I talk about was a person referred to often as Crowley's apprentice, somebody by the name of Israel Rigardi. Uh, he was born Israel Rigudi in London's impoverished East End. He was a kind of a poor person of Jewish extraction, one of a few of Crowley's followers who were Jewish. Uh, at one time, Crowley said in the OTO, a third of the OTO members were Jewish, which I think is an interesting uh, fact considering it was a, a German secret society. But... Like many others, others of these people who I cover in this book, they had an early interest in the occult. And uh, Rigardi was similar to L. Ron Hubbard in a way because they both got their interest in the occult at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. And as he kept reading, he came across Aleister Crowley's book four and wrote to Crowley. And uh, Crowley actually talked to him. And at, when Crowley, uh, Rigardi was 21, he set sail for Paris. That was 1928. And he remembers his meeting, face-to-face -face meeting with Crowley. He recalls, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, said Crowley. This was said by a very British voice, thin and smoothly slurring, but hardly cockney, as alleged by Calder Marshall. Then I knew, for of course I was more familiar with the phrase. Just to my right stood a tall figure, rather heavy-set, in blue-gray tweeds, plus fours. There was a cap of the same material placed very conservatively over a large head. It's always a common theme of Crowley, the kind of large head. That, uh, it's kind of important, one of his more distinctive features. The eyes were not big, but gleamed pleasantly over the dark bags beneath them. A light smile played around the corners of a small mouth. The hand grip, which came next, was not very firm, nor was mine for that matter. I was very nervous, despite my clear pleasure in confronting Aleister Crowley for the first time. So that was interesting. And he, he became kind of one of these people on the same, they were very similar trajectories in Crowley's followers. They could probably stand him for about five years max, you know, uh, working alongside him. Rigardi ended up on that same kind of trajectory. Uh, Rigardi worked alongside Crowley, attending to typing duties and assembling ma his many manuscripts. Uh, later in life, Rigardi would say of his master that Crowley was illuminated. There can be no doubt whatsoever. He admired Crowley's erudition, who became, he, Crowley, he said, became an expert at a dozen or so varieties of Hindu and Buddhist yoga. He experimented with more drugs more frequently than anybody in the West before the neurological revolution of the 1960s. Um, he was also associated with one of, uh, who we'll talk about in just a minute, one of Crowley's fellow, dis fellow disciples, a guy by the name of Gerald York. And it was interesting that they both kind of had similar concerns in their relationship with bisexual Crowley. Uh, here he writes, York and I never had a great deal in common. There were only occasional distant friendly chats. Our only bond of union was our common interest in Crowley, otherwise we'd, we would never have met. But I do recall on one occasion when he let his hair down, or I did, and we mutually confessed our latent apprehensions about the possibility of the old boy, as we familiarly called him, trying some homosexual monkey tricks with either one. 
We were both relieved to find out that we shared this anxiety, and we were even more relieved that nothing really had transpired. So uh, he arrived to be with Crowley in 28. In 29, they were kicked out of France. So Crowley got kicked out of France in 29, got kicked out of Italy in 1922, I believe. Uh, they were kicked out. He was supposed to be kicked out. They were out in uh, 24 hours. And uh, their relationship soured. But he still admired Crowley. He said, uh, you know, there was nobody else who influenced him. He actually wrote a biography of Aleister Crowley called The Eye on the, Eye on the Triangle. And uh, he sensed that Crowley would influence later generations. It's kind of a theme of this book. So he says, Nevertheless, we have to remember that the early preaching of the Gospels was not a startling success for a considerable time. Who can estimate how many hundreds or even thousands of people have been influenced in one, in one way or another by his writing? So he says, he talks about Crowley's Book of the Law, which he claimed to have received in 1924. He says, it really makes little difference in the long run whether the book was dictated by preterhuman intelligence named Iwas or whether it stemmed from the creative deeps of Aleister Crowley. The book was written, and he became the mouthpiece for the, site, for the zeitgeist, accurately expressing the intrinsic nature of our time as no one else has done to date. So his failures and excesses and stupidities are simply the hallmark of his humanity. Was he not, by his own admission, the beast whose number is 666, which is the number of man? Israel Rigardi kind of, you know, it's a similar trajectory to a lot of his followers, where a lot of these people who are interested in Crowley or associated with Crowley went west. They end up in uh, the United States and California in particular. I know for a time Rigardi lived in California. He ended up in Sedona, kind of the New Age uh, area in Mexico. And uh, it's either, I think it's either Mexico or Arizona. Uh, he had learned Reiki and Freudian and Jungian psychotherapy. And, you know, later on in his life, Rigardi said of Crowley, he said, everything I am today, I owe to him. A little known figure that ties Alistair Crowley to people like Ian Fleming and others is a person by the name of Augustus, Augustus John. He was one of the highest paid artists living in England at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, at the time, there was high demand for portraits and sketches of people, and Augustus John was a pretty much of a consistent working person who had done four or five sketches of Alistair Crowley, which I include in the book. He kept uh, doing sketches of Crowley through his lifetime from, uh, I think, the mid-20s to near his death. He was associated with him, but uh, Augustus John, in his own right, was a remarkable person, a, a bohemian who lived kind of like a gypsy. A gypsy. He went around in a gypsy uh, kind of, they had these old carts that they used, and he himself uh, went around one with his wife and his mistress. They seemed to know each other. So uh, in the early 20s, E. Fleming, who was Ian Fleming's mother, uh, and, and Augustus John became... Uh, began a lengthy relationship, and uh, this is after Eve Fleming's husband had died in World War I, a guy by the name of Valentine Fleming. So eventually she gave birth to Amaryllis, who would be a half-sister of Ian Fleming. And uh, she, Amaryllis grew up to be a famous violinist who's a person of, of talent. And uh, the interesting thing about Ian Fleming is he regarded this uh, person he, who was sleeping with his mother with great regard. He really admired Augustus John and uh, considered him a personal hero. It's also interesting that Augustus John was a person, when Crowley wrote his kind of 500-page autobiography, he dedicated it to three people, and one of them was Augustus John. So it's interesting that this person uh, 
is you know kind of uh, held in well regard. He he uh, is rumored to have fathered up to a hundred children, but it was considered probably fifty. And he would make jokes walking around the streets of London or some parts of England, as wondering if this was one of his children. Um, so he's uh, quite a remarkable character. And he you know he he wrote in his confessions he wrote about uh, Crowley in his autobiography. Augustus John did, and I recall it in the book. But, uh, you know, this is a first-hand account of Alistair Crowley by Augustus John. I met Alistair Crowley occasionally in London and Paris. I cannot say I was greatly attracted to him in spite of his sinister reputation, which some people found irresistible. He held me by his glittering eye, as, I bore, as any bore is apt to do, but I was not overawed by his learned mystifications. Yet he was a master of the subject he specialized in, and had, apparently, Nothing to learn as regards the history and practice of magic, white or black. But one memorable evening in the Café Royale, I found him in a rare and happy mood. On this occasion, he astonished and charmed me by a sustained exhibition of verbal effervescence, such as I have never su suspected him capable of. Moreover, his performance appeared to be inspired by nothing more recondite than a bottle of brandy to which he had recourse at regular intervals. I watched him carefully. There was no deception. He had turned his sleeves up. At other times, his efforts to put it over were cruder and less fortunate. But once his Cagliostro pose was discarded, he could be good company. In the course of time, he developed into a very likable old gentleman. He had sadly changed when he had called on me recently to be drawn. I was scared by his appearance. He had shrunk unbelievably, and his eyes were staring. But a book of poems he published shortly afterwards shows no signs of decrepitude. I was cheered by their vigor and verve and told him so. His poetry had been described as Swinburne and Water. I dispute the justice of this too facile estimate. The mixture was much more potent. The fact is the Magus had a good deal more than a stock and trade of a charlatan, and perhaps only lacked good taste. Here follows the last letter from him, received shortly before his death. The Hierophant speaks again. I found it unanswerable. The letters from Netherwood, which Crowley was at when he died, this kind of boarding house. Kind of a nice boarding house in Hastings, southern England. He writes, Care, Frater, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. The greetings of the equinox in autumn. The word of the equinox is brilliance. A Libra L 164 is referencing the book of law. The oracle of the equinox is time. References the book of law again. And then he writes, The omen of the equinox is 8 pi, love. Love is the law, love under worlds, love under will, yours fraternally. And then he signs it. And I can see why uh, Augustus John didn't re reply to that letter because it's pretty vague. Uh, it was Crowley, it was known at the time, was doing massive amounts of heroin, so it's no surprise that he would send odd letters. It's probably the equivalent today of getting strange, e strange emails from people. But I include in the book a lot of Augustus, Augustus John's paintings. I think they're interesting. Augustus John painted Yeats, who sparred with Crowley. He, he painted Lawrence of Arabia and Dylan Thomas, who had a run-in with Crowley. Another person I talk about who was lesser known is a woman by the name of Jane Wolfe. She was a disciple of Aleister Crowley who uh, was from Los Angeles. In 1918, she began a written correspondence with Crowley. And within two years, she would join Crowley at Crowley's Abbey of Thelema, uh, where he lived in southern Italy and Sicily. And she was there for three years until it was, she was one of the people who was kicked out when she was forcibly removed when Mussolini shut it all down. Um, she is remembered by other people there, actually somebody by the name of Betty May, who wrote extensively about her time at the Abbey of Thelema, which I include in my book, Prophet of Evil. She remembered uh, Jane Wolfe answering the door saying, Beast, Mr. and Mrs. Loveday are here. 
So she kind of kept up with the pretense of calling Crowley uh, the Beast. And she, she does retell her story about Crowley, uh, you know, doing all, making her do all kinds of spiritual rituals and stuff like that. But the reason I included her in the book is because she, uh, she was actually one of the people who is a tie between Crowley and some of the people who lived in L.A., particularly Kenneth Anger. He actually lived with Jane Wolfe for a time in Los Angeles, which I think is pretty fascinating. And she knew uh, Jack Parsons, uh, Jack Parsons, who would become the head of the Agape Lodge, and, and L. Ron Hubbard, for that matter. She died in 1958 at the age of 83. Another Crowley disciple who I mentioned when talking about Israel Regardi was Gerald Joseph York. He was kind of fit the profile of a person Crowley wanted as a follower. Crowley did not deal with anybody from the middle class or lower class. Really, maybe Regardi was an exception, but he always thought about, uh, he wrote about polishing diamonds, you know, leaving the muck of the mire. And Gerald York was a graduate of Eton and Cambridge. He came from an aristocratic banking family. And he, uh, in the last day of 1927, started writing Crowley. And uh, he became another kind of associate of Crowley who would help publish his books and uh, act as kind of a, a secretary for him. Um, he remembered living, uh, talking about the, the Crowley. He said he was living a pre precarious existence in Paris, relying upon the loyalty of the members of his order and upon his wits to augment his pittance from a trust fund. I do not think he was receiving a penny in royalties from his books. He had, however, plenty of schemes for his rehabilitation. They all depended upon his obtaining a headquarters and working up an organization. So eventually York would fall out of Crowley, but he um, traveled to, but he still kind of uh, kept an interest in the East. He kind of went to the East kind of like Crowley did. And his association was with the Dalai Lama in the 1930s. Uh, he also wrote about uh, China and would travel with Peter Fleming, who was Ian Fleming's brother. Uh, Ian, Ian Fleming had kind of an interesting relationship with his brother, brother Peter Fleming, who was kind of a world traveler and pretty dashing character. And uh, Ian, you know, in those early days kind of fell under his shadow or felt like he was under his brother Peter's shadow. Uh, you know, it wasn't until later that after the war that Ian kind of uh, achieved his, no, his own personal notoriety. But uh, one of the interesting things about York is he uh, <clears throat> he was with Crowley in December 22nd, 1936, when there was a uh, portions of Crowley's book was read at Cleopatra's Needle in front of a Sphinx on the Thames in London at a certain time, 6.22 a.m., so all these numerical times are important to Crowley. Um, and he, see, he Crowley proclaimed, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. He also claimed the law of Thelema, and, uh, you know, he said that civilization would come to an end. And interestingly, you know, World War II started three years later. Um, interestingly, also, York kind of brought back ideas from the East. One was a guy by the name of Iyengar. He was a uh, yoga master or yoga guru. guru. And um, he would publish him Light on Yoga, which was a series of postures, postures for yoga. And York was friends with L. Ron Hubbard. Um, according to John York, Gerald York knew L. Ron Hubbard quite well and said that the start of Scientology can be rooted in some of the stuff referring to Crowleyism. So that's from his son. Um, according to one biographer, York himself initiated filmmaker Kenneth Anger into the OTO Crowley's secret society, or the secret society, secret society that he eventually headed. Um, and Crowley, uh, York was interesting, too, because he became the greatest 
accumulator of Crowley's materials. He was, uh, you know, one of these people who uh, accumulated all of Crowley's work for historical reasons. It's in a, in a, right now in a museum in London. And here he is writing about Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley was the most colorful man of his day. Whatever Crowley was, he was not a charlatan. He believed, he worked, he suffered, he had power. He failed to put over the religion of Philema in his lifetime, which, considering its nature, is not surprising. The Christian world regards him as one of the devil's contemplatives. His few friends will not see his like again, and his still fewer disciples mourn the passing of Amagus. Uh, it's kind of an interesting statement about Crowley, from somebody who knew him. Uh, <clears throat> he also, you know, these first-hand accounts are very interesting. So he writes about Crowley. He says, His life was full of what to me were sordid quarrels. He was suspicious of everyone, though at times he trusted everyone. He frequently misjudged motives, so that one could by no means trust this insight. Then he demanded everything of a disciple. Money, reputation, family, friends to, had to be sacrificed to the cause, which in fact meant Crowley the Messiah of the cause, of the new religion for mankind, Philema. This I was not prepared to do, as I never fully accepted the book of the law. The moment I left the AA in 1932 or 33, he never made those demands on me, never badgered me for money and services. I could not re remain his disciple without being involved with his scarlet women. I do not mean having to sleep with them or anything of that sort. In his crazy financial schemes, his endless rows, and his plans to run the world, so I broke loose. But I remained friendly towards him. His smile of welcome whenever we met was always treasured. I was very fond of him. Finally, what fun he was. So that's kind of an interesting uh, insight into Crowley from another of his disciples. Another person who knew him was Charles R. Camel, who wrote a, a biography of Crowley. It was Alistair Crowley, the man, the mage, the poet. Uh, Camel himself was a a poet similar to Crowley, and he wrote of Crowley's verse. He said, a poet fired with imagination, gifted with eloquence, singular, vehement, and magnificent. So he admired Crowley's poetry, where many others did not. Um, and he writes of Crowley, Crowley's powerful intellect was riddle, was a riddle. Now acute in judgment, now nebulous and unbalanced. His erudition, however, was solid and far-reaching and his genius was prodigious. I have heard an eminent personage, General J.F.C. Fuller, a man famous in arms and letters, who we talked about earlier, one who has known the greatest statesmen, wars, and dictators of our age, declare solemnly that the most extraordinary genius he ever knew was Crowley. So that's interesting. He also talks about the Book of the Law quite a bit, but uh, one of the interesting aspects of Charles Kamel is that his son, uh, would Donald Kamel, would bounce on the knee of Crowley, and I get to Donald Camel later. Uh, so it's kind of a tie-in to later things. There's just the life of Donald Campbell is remarkable. So here's a guy who sat on the knee of Crowley and, uh, you know, had a pretty fascinating life. Then I talk about somebody who people in Britain know more than people in the United States. But uh, a guy by the name of Thomas Dryberg, he was uh, part of the Labor Party for something like 40 years and <clears throat> involved in all types of different scandals. But he was considered at one time to be Crowley's heir, which is a fascinating statement. So Crowley was always looking for somebody to turn over the head of the OTO to and OTO to run. And uh, Thomas Dryberg at one point was one of them. And it's interesting, too, because Dryberg, Dryberg was probably always an asset of British intelligence at MI5, the domestic intelligence agency, as a spook to uh, infiltrate the left, communists and the like. And... Uh, so he kind of was on the same kind of path as Crowley in that regard. Um, so I have a letter here of Dryberg to Crowley. He, he writes to Crowley in 1925. 
I have recently read with much interest your novel, Diary of a Drug Fiend, and am encouraged by the note at the beginning of Part 3 to communicate with you. I have for a long time been interested not only in drugs and the possibility of using them moderately and beneficially, but also generally in the development of latent spiritual powers and, powers and questions of occultism, etc. I have, the, I have, after some consideration, decided to become a member of the Theosophical Society, but it occurs to me that you may be able to help me, with, help me still more directly and speedily than they. I hope you don't mind my writing, but I dare say many other of your readers have done the same and that you have been able to help them. My apologies for troubling you. Yours, Tom Driver. Will you please, of course, regard this letter as confidential? So, after a lengthy correspondence, they started lunching together and uh, sending time, you know, sending letters and notes to each other. And uh, you know, he called Crowley a master, and he refer referred to him as his master at some point, which is kind of like a statement of somebody who's in a cult. And uh, there was a writing later that that Driver uh, gave his life over to Thelema. And, follow, and signed a following declaration to Crowley. He says, I, Thomas Dryberg, in the presence of the B666, solemnly pledge myself to the great work, which is to discover my own true will and do it. Love is the law, lover in the world. Witness my hand, Thomas Dryberg. So Dryberg writes extensively about Crowley, um, and I include all of it in the book. I think it's interesting. There's definitely, he's hiding stuff and not telling the truth and kind of giving, mildly mockering, uh, mocking Crowley, but I don't think that, it's uh, it's fully honest. I think that he really did admire Crowley through most of his life. And then uh, Dyberg had Dyberg was a homosexual with uh, you know pretty strange tastes, and he was friends with another member of the uh, kind of the top of the political parties in in England by the name of Robert Boothby. Boothby was close friends with. Winston Churchill, and uh, it's actually pretty remarkable about his friend friendship with him. But uh, they were also tied in with this Ronnie and Reggie Cray, who were the notorious British gangsters of the 60s. And it's believed, and after my reading, I believe it, that the Cray brothers were savvy enough to become friends with Dryberg and Boothby, compromise them both, and use their political contacts to allay their their uh, criminal prosecution. And so for, a, I think, a period of three or four years, maybe in the 60s, the Cray brothers really didn't have any prosecution until they started killing some of the associates in their gang and they turned on them. But um, I think it's a pretty remarkable story of this guy, Crowley's heir, who's uh, tied up in all of this stuff and with the Crays who are, I mean, probably... the the British Al Capone, you know, something like that, that, that big. Tom Dryberg is the sort of pe person who gives sodomy a bad name, Winston Churchill wrote of Dryberg. And uh, Dryberg was just kind of, people described him, des described him a lot like Crowley, this kind of zealot-like figure. Um, here's written, Tom was a zealot of sorts. On the picket lines of the general strike in Spain during the Civil War, in America for Pearl Harbor, in Paris for the Liberation, in Buchenwald just after it was relieved, in Korea with the Royal Marines, in London when it was swinging. So he was always around kind of in the thick of things. Um, he was what's known as a cottager. Uh, it's kind of a, it's basically the English equivalent of a guy who cruises public bathrooms. So he, he was, uh, you know, something else. And, you know, some people had a very acidic view of him that he was really terrible and 
Evelyn Waugh wrote of him. I went to church on Margaret Street where I was discomposed to observe Tom Dryberg's satanic face in the congregation. Um, it's an interesting thing about Tom Dryberg, too, is that he was kind of uh, a Christian as well. He went going to Christian church. He was an occultist. He was a spy. He was a journalist, and he was a politician. People said his political skills were strong That um, in his district that he, he, he uh, was head of. He was considered an excellent politician, so... Dryberg went on to try to convince Mick Jagger to join politics. Um, and here's something. Can the man who in the 1920s was anointed by Aleister Crowley to succeed him as the great beast be the man who in the 1960s tried to persuade Mick Jagger to become a Labour MP? That's kind of interesting. Uh, he was also friends with or associated with Guy Burgess, who was one of the infamous fame, uh, Cambridge Five turncoats, people who were involved in communism, and actually traveled to... Moscow at one point to uh, talk to Burgess, where Burgess subsequently died of a heart attack. Interesting. Um, at the at the end of his life, Dryberg would fly to Gore Vidal's estate in Italy to work on his biography, frequently corresponding with fellow journal, journalist Christopher Hitchens, who remembered, I only knew him at the fag end of his career when the passions had been banked down a bit. He was tending to live off his store of anecdotes and acquaintances, making a point, for instance, of drinking only milk in Indian restaurants because... Crowley, the beast you know, always advised it. Kind of an interesting point. That's from Christopher Hitchens, who, uh, you know, uh, was kind of a famous American English journalist. Uh, at some point, Crowley, I mean, Dryberg auctioned off all of Crowley's books, and actually the person who bought them was uh, Jimmy Page. Uh, one of the books was uh, sold to, to Jimmy Page. I reference, by rather dubious means, he acquired Crowley's manuscript diary, which recorded his daily magical and sexual doings. Many years later, Tom sold this for a handsome sum to Jimmy Page, the guitarist with the rock group Led Zeppelin. Um, and uh, in 1973, Tom Dryberg raised more money by auctioning at Christie's several volumes presented to him by Crowley. They include a copy of the Book of the Law inscribed to Dryberg, saying, To true Thomas of the Eildon Hills, with all best wishes from Bulliskin and Alteroff. In the same lot was a letter from Crowley urging Tom to study the Quran. I also hope that you will be pleased by the sincerity and simplicity of the Mohammedan faith and learn up the words so as not to make any more howlers like Muslims. That's what uh, Crowley wrote to Dryberg. Um, and he eventually, uh, he was, Dryberg was known to associate with uh, Jimmy Savile, notorious Jimmy Savile. So that's another aspect of Dryberg that uh, needs more uh, investigation. Believe it or not, I, I think that that would be an interesting uh, element of his life if he was really close to, to Savile. But somebody wrote after Dryberg died in 1976 of a heart attack. It would have been more, been no more than just if Dryberg had been betrayed, for the overall verdict on him in journalism, in politics, in politics and intelligence is that eventually he betrayed everybody. So it's an interesting um, thing. I include a picture here of him with... Uh, the Prime Minister, Harold, Harold Wilson, who he was a confidant of. I also cover uh, in the book a little bit about Gerald Gardner, who I've talked about before, but he also uh, was an associate of Aleister Crowley, uh, the founder of Wicca. A lot of the Wiccans don't like to acknowledge that, or they think it's all just you know some kind of wine and cheese group, but uh, Gardner was there. He has an OTO charter, which I include in the book, uh, written by Crowley, and uh, some of the Elements that Gardner took, uh, some elements of a religion Gardner took straight from Crowley's writing. So I don't think there's any doubt about that. 
Another disciple I talk about in the book is Kenneth Grant, who lived with Crowley. When Crowley was in Netherwood and Hastings, he stayed, Crowley stayed at this kind of upper class boarding house. Uh, I wouldn't call it kind of an old folks home, but more of like, uh, he had a room in kind of a mansion. And uh, at that time there was a cottage out back and Kenneth Grant uh, lived in that cottage. Uh, He said of Crowley, Crowley was almost but not quite at the end of the road. His mind remained keen and alert, but in ill health, old age, and the air raids had driven him from London. Uh, He recalled his time with Crowley richly rewarding. Um, In 1945, while he was with Crowley, Crowley invited him to select a a piece of artwork. Interestingly, Grant selected the picture of Lamb, the entity invoked during the Elementor working in 1918. It's kind of big-headed, alien-looking thing. For Grant, Crowley's encounter with Lamb represented the first and perhaps most momentous example of the phenomenon of grain-alien contact, which by the start of the 1960s was increasingly becoming part of a popular culture. Kind of an interesting quote. Um, Grant would go on to kind of start an inner part of the OTO that attempted to contact this entity. It's kind of an interesting offshoot of uh, Crowley's teachings. And... uh, <clears throat> he agreed with Crowley on a lot of precepts. He said, I think the book of the law contains the key to the principal occult mysteries of the present age. He believed that the information in the book of the law would destroy the world, saying, It was Crowley's belief that when the book of the law is finally published in strict accordance with the instructions given by Awas, editorial, the Lord of the Air, in its third chapter, it will affect the total destruction of civilization as we know it. So far, the instructions have been perfectly executed and the Holocaust, therefore, incomplete. Um... Grant would go on to write quite a few books, and uh, he he was aware of the work of Jack Parsons, who we'll get to in just a minute. He believed, he knew that there were kind of discarnate entities and things like that going on. But uh, he believed in kind of going back to Crowley, and Crowley's kind of uh, the Order of the Golden Dawn, he believed in hidden guides of humanity. And he says, however, since the middle of the present century, the masters would seem to have decided that the massive exhibition of mysterious phenomena is at least in order, or is at last in order. Otherwise, explains the frequent and sometimes alarming appearance in our skies during the last 40 years or so of inexplicable lights and unidentified objects. These weird phenomena have been cited not predominantly by occultists, magicians, or metaphysicians, but by ordinary people following the pursuits of ordinary People, soldiers, sailors, policemen, airmen, farmers, lorry drivers, and so on. A glance at any one of literally hundreds of books on so-called UFOs should convince any but the hopelessly purblind that numberless, because uncounted, individuals, groups of individuals, a lot today have seen with their own eyes phenomena equal to, not surpassing, anything witnessed by the few or privy to Madame Blavatsky and her Mahatma. So he equates kind of the UFOs to this 19th century um, cult experiences of people like Blavatsky. Um, <clears throat> you know, people reference, there's uh, people like Alan Moore and Peter Lavenda reference Grant as important. And Grant kind of stated in his magical revival that the OTO was created to transform the masses by spreading the energy of Satan across the world, he says. The keen and persistent practice of even a few dedicated individuals will effectively overthrow society and thereby facilitate the unhindered development of the new aeon and the reintegration of the human consciousness. So he believed uh, in that kind of change. I also talk about uh, Adolf Hitler. We talked earlier about J.F.C. Fuller's connection to Hitler, but I also just wanted to show the 
similarities in outlook of Adolf Hitler and Aleister Crowley. Um, <clears throat> if you look at some of early kind of Hitler's life, he he had connections to other kind of occultists such as Dietrich Eckhart, but uh, they had kind of the same outlook on life. Crowley, Crowley himself stated, we should have no compunction in utilizing the natural qualities of the bulk of mankind. We do not insist on trying to train sheep to, fox, to hunt foxes or lecture on history. We look after their physical well-being and enjoy their wool and mutton. In this way, we, sh we shall have a contented class of slaves who accept the condition conditions of existence as they really are and enjoy life with the quiet wisdom of the cattle. So that was Crowley talking about uh, how, what he thought about pe people. And then Hitler's malevolent regime kind of looked at kind of this kind of slave shall serve mentality, the idea of slave camps and how Hitler took millions of workers to you know, create armaments for the Second World War. So there's some, some kind of uh, interesting similarities between the, both, between the both. Hitler himself began sterilizing and killing those he deemed unfit early in the Nazi regime. In 1933, the German government instituted the law for the prevention of proge progeny with hereditary diseases. This law caused, called for the sterilization of all persons who suffered from diseases considered hereditary, including mental illness, learning disabilities, physical deformity, epilepsy, blindness, deafness, and severe alcoholism. With the law's passage, of the Third Reich, also, Third Reich also stepped up its propaganda against the disabled, regularly labeling them life unworthy of life or useless eaters, sounds familiar, and highlighting their burden upon society. Soon a compulsory euthanasia program followed, and thousands of individuals disappeared from institutions in Germany never to be seen again. And uh, so, you know, kind of both, both Hitler and Crowley believed in the cold, loveless agenda of breeding human beings, and Hitler himself created a breeding program for his elite soldiers in the Schutzstaffel called the Lebensborn. And the members of the SS, who were supposed to be the apex of German society, were encouraged to have as many children as possible. Both Hitler and Crowley were both New Agers. Crowley promoted the emergence of an illuminated New Age, a new aeon, and constantly emphasized his ideal for a new order of human existence in his writings. Hitler himself frequently referred to a New Age in his speeches and considered his Third Reich a new political entity for Nietzschean new man. One cannot argue against the claim that the Nazi worldview or, and major elements of the New Age movement are identical. They should be, for after all, they both grew out of the same occult root, theosophy, their respective cosmology, cosmology and philosophies are identical. That was an interesting um, comment by a historian. There are a number of peculiar connections between the beast and, Germ and the German dictator. Alistair Crowley spent time in Germany near the end of the Weimar Republic, during the time of Hitler's years of ascent into the chancellery of the German state. Also, as we spoke of earlier, Major General J.F.C. Fuller, was one of only two Englishmen to celebrate Hitler's 50th birthday party. Crowley emphasized the primacy of the human will and had his, this tenet codified into his cult religion of, as his word and law, thelema, or will in Greek. Crowley thought himself as a prophet of the human will, stating, I have been prepared in solitude to become such. I was now, little by little, to enter my life, enter upon my life as the prophet of the law of thelema. Interestingly, in Hitler's Germany, Lenny Riefenstahl's film Triumph of the Will was released in 1935 and became the best-known piece of cinematic political propaganda in world history. The film begins with Hitler coming out of the sky in an airplane, poised as a descending savior of the German nation. One critic commented, 
Hitler is cast as a veritable German messiah who will save the nation, if only the citizenry will put its destiny in his hands. Hitler, the dominant antichrist figure of the 20th century, scorched the earth with death and destruction while following his own true will. The aforementioned, aforementioned demonic values serve as a model for the New World Order, where the principles of Crowley and Hitler will cover the entire planet. Considering all the similarities and their connections to secret societies and occult doctrines, and the near carbon copy correlations in thought and ideology between Crowley and Hitler cannot be dismissed. In 1936, Crowley wrote to one of his German disciples with the idea to contact Hitler and explain to him the value of Crowley's religion of Thelema. Crowley writing, It seems to me that under present circumstances, if I understand them aright, the only means of propaganda is to address the leader, Hitler, himself, and show him that the acceptance of these philosophical principles, Thelema, is the only means of demonstrating to reason, instead of merely to enthusiasm, the propriety of the measures he is taking for the rebuilding of the Reich. Unless he does this, the churches will ultimately strangle him. They have an almost infinite capacity for resistance and endurance for this very reason to their systems are based upon a fundamental theory which will enable, enable them to survive attacks and restraints. They bow as much as they are compelled to bow to force, and they subsequently excuse their yielding on the grounds of expediency. If the Fuhrer wishes to establish his principle permanently, he must uproot them entirely, and this can only be done by superseding their deepest conceptions. That's an important statement because uh, eventually Hitler himself, and I, I write about this in the book, is that he had plans through the Nazi party to destroy Christianity, and I think that's actually agreed upon by many, if not most, of historians of the Third Reich. Uh, <clears throat> the Balder von Schirach, the Nazi leader of the Hitler Youth, stated the destruction of Christianity was explicitly recognized as a purpose of the National Socialist Movement. According to Nazi authority William Shire, author of The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, under the leadership of Rosenberg, Bormann, and Himmler, backed by Hitler, the Nazi regime intended to destroy Christianity in Germany, if it could, and substitute the old paganism of the early tribal Germanic gods and the new paganism of Nazi extremists. Nazi extremists. After World War II, Crowley said, Before Hitler was, I am. And one of the other interesting aspects of Hitler is that he owned 16,000 books, and many of them survived World War II. And our American Library of Congress has about a thousand of them. One worn book with 66 annotations made by Hitler was titled Magic, History, Theory, and Practice by Ernst Schertl. And the book covers a range of esoteric ter territory with an emphasis on the demonic. Um, Schertl was a kind of an interesting figure, but he talks about magic being something primeval, heroic, unsentimental, something violent, aristocratic, bodily concrete, which resists every abstraction, universalism, and moralization. Magic is the plunder of the demonically imbued man. So it looks like Hitler really wrote, uh, annotated this book heavily. And uh, the highlights show some aspects of Hitler's actual personality, which is interesting. It's also important to remember that Crowley wrote a book called Magic Theory and Practice, which is very similar to Ernst Schertl's book. Um, I don't know what the actual contents are, their similarity in contents to the Schertl book, but I think it's fascinating that Hitler wrote a book like that after uh, Ernst Schertl and Hitler had been reading for the book. So one of the quotes of Hitler is, just like the heroism of early times, he was condemned to decline in every place where humanistic and universalistic trends have gained the upper hand. Um, here's another highlight. Hence, the magician always appears antagonistic to the dominating time streams and is therefore always perceived as evil, but physiologically he appears atavistic, like every genius. Pretty fascinating statement. 
uh, one thickly annotated line reads, he who, not, he who does not have the demonic seed within himself will never give birth to the magical world. Uh, many passages mirror ideas of Blavatsky, where Lucifer is the light of bringer and creative founder of civilization. For example, but Satan is in everything that lives and appears. He acts in the last tenderest beam of light of the last star, before it's, it is dissolving in the gray twilight of the worlds. One passage highlighted by Hitler presages his leadership approach of the Nazi party. There are always a few that make the true birth of the demon, the god, the only thing of importance, but the particular magic of the people must be addressed as well. Only when a master magician invokes a god and had won the form can the deity enter into life and again power over the largest complexes of individuals. Schrödel finishes the book, titled, like I said, titled similarly to Matt, uh, Alistair Crowley's book, with an admonition to continue forward on the magical path. It is a devotion to the magic, as in this book it was written, which gives us a fundamental and crucial understanding of our entire existence. It gives us the gift, in a sense, to help persuade the hidden gods to make themselves known. Only by doing magic through practice and gaining experience will we recognize divinity and learn to be one with her. This is the goal. End. I think the last person I'll be able to cover in this hour is Ian Fleming. And I've already kind of discussed some of Ian Fleming's connections to Aleister Crowley through Augustus John earlier in this talk, but... As most people know, Ian Fleming is the author of the James Bond novel series. Um, over 100 million books of the series have been sold, and over 25 films have been made. So James Bond is really a global phenomenon, and it's interesting that Ian Fleming has significant connections to Crowley through a wide variety of people. Uh, his brother Peter, who I talked about earlier, was close friends with Gerald York, and both families from uh, both from banking families. And... Um, like I said, his mother had a daughter while in a relationship with Augustus John, but he was also a step-cousin with actor Christopher Lee, believe it or not. He was in a wide variety, and it's later on I cover that in the book, but he was in a few books that were inspired by Crowley through Dennis Wheatley, who I don't think I'll be able to cover. Um, and also Somerset Mom, who wrote a book about Crowley called The Magician, uh, was a lifelong friend of Ian Fleming. Um, they, were, they were friends for decades. So Ian Fleming was was from a, a wealthy banking family. He kind of dabbled around. He actually spent time in German, Germany. He was a fluent in German. And uh, he was considered kind of a black sheep. He didn't really achieve kind of stuff like his brother um, Peter had. Uh, but he was recruited late, late, later in his life at the age of 30 to the Naval Intelligence Division by Rear Admiral, Admiral John Godfrey. So he had no qualifications, but his code name was 17F. He worked as Godfrey's personal assistant, but Godfrey considered him uh, a superb a assistant. He really thought he was something else. He said that uh, Fleming had a reputation for indolence and accessory eccentricity that in fact masked a lively imagination and an analytical mind. Uh, Fleming himself liaised with most of Britain's nine secret organizations in the war effort. His boss said, his zeal, ability, and judgment are altogether exceptional. Ian was a war winner, so he really uh, thought of Ian Fleming as a, a great servant. And a lot of this is very secret. The official secrets acts prevent a lot of what Ian Fleming was up to from ever being disclosed, but people have kind of put together uh, de a decent understanding of what he really did during the war. Um, it's known that he traveled to the United States and assisted Wild Bill Donovan in writing a blueprint for American centralized intelligence that became the CIA. He also oversaw Operation Goldeneye, a plant meant to frustrate German influence in Spain, 
and prevent the conquest of strategically important English outpost at Gibraltar. Um, Fleming is credited with devising operated Operation Mincemeat, designed to fool the Axis powers into believing the invasion, Europe, invasion of Europe was to begin in Greece when the Allies uh, planned their primary assault in the Mediterranean on Sicily. Um, he was also involved in a sophisticated operation transforming a corpse at sea with detailed and fake mil military information indicating an attack on Greece. And uh, there's a picture in my book of Ian Fleming with Lucky Luciano. Um, so <clears throat> one of the elements, one of his first villains, really, you know, if you look at all the James Bond movies and all the different types of villains, but the first villain in his first book was somebody by the name of Le Chiffre which is to, uh, means the code and that person was named uh, was related or, or based upon Aleister Crowley so that was in Casino Royale and the Schiffer's bloated physical features resembled the middle-aged Crowley's uh, Fleming's biographer Henry Chancellor wrote when Le Schiff goes to work on Bond's te testicles with a carpet beater and a carving knife the sinister fe fe figure of Aleister Crowley is there lurking in the background another biographer John Pearson uh, wrote about it. He said, when he came to construct his characters, Fleming dredged up some essential figures from his own past. He would usually paint a new face on them for every story, but the shapes beneath never altered very much. One was the villain figure who made his bow in Casino Royale as the fat, white, slug-like Le Chiffre, with his sadistic impulses, his benzedrine inhaler, and his insatiable appetite for women. It is likely Fleming borrowed some of the external characteristics from the necromancer Aleister Crowley. Not only does the general figure of Le Chiffre with his size, ugliness, and the overtones of unmentionable vice match the impression Crowley usually created, but minor parallels exist between them. Both called people dear boy and both, like Mussolini, had the whites of their eyes completely visible around the iris. So that's a brief overview of the first 90 or 100 pages of my book, Children of the Beast, Aleister Crowley's A Shadow of Humanity, which can be purchased at occultinvestigations.com. I also have a wide variety of videos about... Uh, this book on my YouTube channel, which is Occult Investigation. So if you go there and subscribe, I'd appreciate it and take a look at the videos. And I can also be found at Facebook under William Ramsey if you have any questions. Thank you very much. Have a good night.